The Cozy Robot Show. Hey, Cozy Robots. I'm Mike McCarg. <laughs> I'm Victory Palmasano. And I'm Grace Vaughn. Welcome to the Cozy Robot Show, broadcasting live on Twitter and Twitch and Facebook and YouTube, available on demand later on Instagram TV, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the channels. This is a show about empathetic skepticism where we explore our feelings and our critical thinking. We find out that those things work together just as well as peanut butter and jelly or peas and carrots or data and analytics. So... <laughs> Inside jokes. <laughs> Inside jokes. Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome. I don't even know what it's about tonight. It's uh, we're we've not got a new to format do. on the program. It's a big mystery. You are you are looking at the folks in charge right now on the screen, Victory and Grace. Uh, Victory's our showrunner, and uh, Grace is our social media manager. And we all make the show together. And we thought it'd be fun if that was in front of the camera and as well as behind it. And so. Uh, you know, tonight we are taking your questions live, is my understanding. Absolutely. So if you That's have right. a question for, I'd say me, but frankly us, you could ask Grace and Victor questions too if you'd like. Um, you can pop that in the chat wherever you happen to be watching right now. By the way, Victor and Grace are mortified. As I just said <laughs> yes, I'm horrified. <laughs> I'm like, excuse. Uh, <laughs> we're like, uh, pardon. Oh my god! But we are we are we are drama club meets AV club, a well-rounded <laughs> composition we of uh, personalities. A bunch of nerds, basically. Of Pretty nerds. much. There's uh, nuance in the nerd group, but still a bunch of nerds. Well, I have. Hi, Priscilla. I'm gonna, yeah, hi, Priscilla. Hi, Priscilla. Uh, I have, um, gosh, a lot of people are already asking a lot of good questions, but I'm going to start it off with my own question, Mike. Um. Grace and I keep showing up to do the Cozy Robot show accidentally wearing the same thing. <laughs> we <really> do. <laughs> Unplanned. We did once plan our lipstick. I will confess to that. But beyond that, we keep showing up wearing like the same color. Grace and I, in our whole history of knowing each other, I don't think I've ever worn white. And we like no, meet never multiple was. times a week. What is the scientific reason that we accidentally or supposedly accidentally keep showing up wearing the same monochromatic matching outfits uh i couldn't say for certain i could go in 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 hypotheses at varying level of confidence starting with most confident moving toward least confidence <laughs> um confirmation bias is probably the most likely thing uh have you ever noticed that when you um you get a new car and you drive you see around. Them everywhere. Yeah. And the, the confirmation bias and selectivity bias immediately are like, wow, I see that car everywhere. So the fact that it like happened made it mm -hmm. notable and then it happens again. And then your brain remembers matches and not misses in those situations. It's the same way that like clairvoyants and psychics and mentalists are, make such good programs mm -hmm. because the times they guess accurately, which are a small statistical minority of the things they say, is what our brains focus on and remember, okay? That would be the most likely. Um, we're also social primates. 
We are social mammals. Our uh, body brain systems are tuned to uh, gain an awareness and, in fact, build a neurological model of every person we know. And grace and victory is you're getting to know each other. <clears throat> Your personalities are having... Uh, an impact on each other. You know, the formation of your thoughts, your ideas, and your impulses wow. are shaped that by your really interactions. Yeah, so that, that could be a really factor nice. as well. Okay. I'm less confident in that one, though, than in the confirmation. <laughs> Wait, that's the, the one, one that I we like the most. Right. <laughs> yeah. I suspect it. So you're saying the magical, it <laughs> it's not the magic of friendship? Mike, no, I was, I thought saying? there was, yeah, I thought that was going to be one of the least confident, but like a possibility. Well, that that it they're both very possible. But those would be the the two most likely and I li there's probably a combination of those two things. Um and uh apparently I'm, I'm not being shaped enough to have also worn white. So <laughs> next time we'll we'll send you a like subliminal message. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll we'll <laughs> use we'll use our minds to communicate it to you. Uh Mike, so someone came on about 15 minutes early to the stream. Their wow. handle is the Eternal Raccoon, which is very cool. Very cool. And they asked mm -hmm. the question, what does science tell us about the positive effects of listening to the it to and performing music, specifically classical music? Real turn there at the end, going specifically into classical music. Oh, gosh. You know, classical music has uh, some notable departures from uh, popular music and all the sub-genres therein that are more modern. Um, namely, a greater emphasis, or excuse me, a lesser emphasis on the enunciation of rhythm. The beat is less of a defining feature in classical music, as well as um, it's entirely instrumental composition and most of the dominant voicings of instruments in the classical genre have a similar uh timbre i believe is the term i'm not a music expert and pitch signature as the human voice especially the cello and the violin um although it can be true for the dominant voices and brass instruments as well um and so when we've studied the impacts of classical music on human people, we found that uh, classical music, I believe of all uh, classical time signatures, uh, Turkish classical is actually the, the most exemplary example, but all have a um, really positive impact on stress and anxiety. They're very relaxing forms of music to listen to. Uh, in some studies, they've shown to um, increase uh, creative impulses and creative feelings. Um, people feel more creative and therefore less inhibited to do creative work when they hear classical music and it's soothing. And I think that's the intersection of the timbre and pitch of the instruments as well as a reduced emphasis on the beat. Wow. There wow. you go. The Mozart Great effect. question. Uh, Mike, here's... And the next question. Whoa, uh, so questions Mike, on screen. So fancy. Yeah, so fancy. <laughs> um, uh, Victory did it earlier and I was like, oh, okay. I'm, like, I'm going to do this I'm too. I'm going to try that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mike Clemens says, happy Monday. What do you think of Elon Musk's Neuralink? Should we be afraid of eventual mind control? 
machine brain interfaces are really cool. I would start with what I love about them. Uh, for people who have mobility limitations or disability, uh, machine brain interfaces offer incredible potential for assistive technologies. So if you can imagine, it's one thing, you know, um, to be able to manipulate using a mapped mind feature or a mapped body feature, like if you want to control a chair, to do so with your lips is one thing. To control your wheelchair with your mind would be pretty liberating. Or if you um, are missing an arm, uh, especially your dominant arm, we had a machine brain interface that you could directly control an artificial arm, that would be also very liberating. Uh, machine brain interfaces um, are really remarkable already we can see people can control cursors they can transfer transmit limited words to a machine brain interface one particularly <laughs> uh evocative example i know from a few years back when we were first pioneering machine brain interfaces and then putting a machine in between two brains i saw one experiment where a researcher was able to think and then move a rat's tail on a still living rat they both Whoa. have machine brain interface so um when we get to thinking about Ultimately, what we do already is move brain states from brain to brain in our culture. And sometimes we move our thoughts to machines using keyboards or using um, cameras or other sensors. And a machine brain interface is just another kind of sensor, but it feels more invasive. Why? Because it's in our brains or in some way connected to our brains. And we don't have the same selective control over what we think as compared to what we say. So, um, I don't think we should be afraid of machine brain interfaces, but I also think we should move cautiously in how we implement this technology, and we want to make sure that people's private thought lives stay just that, private. The last thing I would ever want to see would be some government being able to get a search warrant that authorized them to listen to the neurological impulses happening in my brain Uh without my knowledge or permission under any circumstances. I think that takes us to really dangerous and uncharted territories, notions of thought crime like we have seen in dystopian literature. Also, the last thing I want in the world is for advertising companies to target ads at me based on my thoughts. You know, that would mean for me these days, I would basically basically get advertisements for Dungeons and Dragons and Hummingbird feeders, but, you know, <laughs> at different seasons, there's no telling. Uh, you know, where that would go. So I think Neuralink is one of many companies working on these 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 interfaces. And I think like all technology, um, caution is warranted. But ultimately, if we're careful, it can be used for good. And we should use like the recent developments in commercial social media platforms as a cautionary tale that technology doesn't automatically find a beneficial or helpful lane in our culture. That's something we have to work at intentionally. Yeah, the lines between privacy and technology are so blurry right now with social media. Mm -hmm. And creepy. <laughs> and creepy and creepy. Yeah. Um, bit of a topic shift. Mike, what? Oh, this is from Christian. Uh, Mike. What do you think happens when folks say they've experienced a near-death experience Ooh. where they've gone brain dead and see or feel mystical things? This is a great question. 
There's a lot of theories there. I want to start by saying I'm going to offer kind of an informed scientific speculation, but we don't have like, uh, you know, flawless brain imagery of uh, someone's brain as they die. It's really expensive and hard to get someone in brain imaging equipment. And knowing the precise moment when someone's going to die is all, you know what I mean? It's that that's a, that's a real hard coordination issue. So even if someone's willing to have their brain imaged as they die, people don't conveniently die uh, on a given schedule. And <laughs> luckily and fortunately, no ethics review board would allow like a medically assisted suicide just so you could image a dying brain. We have imaged the brains of people who are in comas. Um, we do have some uh, understanding that people in a coma can have a level of conscious awareness, and some imaging technologies uh, can let us know which people in a coma may be more or less aware as their coma is unfolding. Uh, but that doesn't cover near-death experiences. What we understand about the brain-body system is our bodies try to stay alive as long as they can. And they did that by prioritizing uh, different systems. So when we go into shock, uh, you'll see that our body kind of starts to pull blood in our organs, including our brain, drawing it away from our muscle tissue, away from uh, our skin. Anything deemed inessential to keeping the organism functioning gets deprioritized. So kind of the, the final things that have resources in our bodies are our heart, our lungs, and our brains. And we surmise fairly reasonably that when a brain gets into an oxygen-deprived state and begins to shut down, um, it does a similar mechanic as the rest of the body, which is to, to keep the lights on in the most essential areas as long as possible. So as much as we love our thought lives and our ability to do philosophy and culture, our neocortex brain, the outerly of the brain, doesn't actually make our uh, coordinate our heart or lung function, right? Uh, that's the brain stem. So it's likely that brain death uh, starts at the outer layer of the brain and moves in toward the brain stem. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The first thing you would lose in that scenario is kind of your storytelling part of your brain. That's weaving all of the impulses in your brain into kind of a cohesive narrative, that which we most associate with our consciousness. And as that part of the brain kind of shut down, you would move deeper into the brain. Well, what is there? Our feelings and our memories, right? So you could imagine uh, you would might uh, experience, uh, number one, you have in the same way that when you sleep, you're ceasing to get signals from the rest of your body. You would experience that kind of lightness that you feel right as you start to fall asleep. And then you would start to feel an emotion. Some people in near-death experiences report feeling comforted, an activation of like their anterior cingulate cortex. Some people report feeling afraid, an activation of their amygdala. As the people they care about and their most important memories start to kind of flash to their awareness. These are neurons firing in the limbic part of their brains. Um, and then finally, um, kind of the back of our brainstem out to the neocortex is our visual cortex and the occipital lobe of the brain. That starts to kind of lose activity, which would present itself as a narrowing aperture of awareness centering on a point of light. It might even look like a tunnel. 
And then as that part of the brain closes down, then we are simply left with our memories and no more ability to purely visualize them. So that would start to be in kind of a softer environment with the essence of our understanding of the things we care about most in our brains before finally, even that goes away too and any neurological activity ceases. So what we see when we study near-death experiences are really plausible brain-based mechanisms for why we have these really common uh, bits of imagery that happen across cultures and across um, history, frankly. And that's likely due to how brains try to keep themselves alive as long as they can by conserving resources and minimizing tissue damage in the event that uh, the oxygen supply to a brain is limited. All right. Well, uh, thank you. I got I've really always... into near-death experiences in Me the brain. Too impacts of that for years yeah. Uh, as part of faith transition because, you yeah. know, when I used to have an answer for what happens when we die, that answer was, well, God takes care of us. And then when I wasn't sure if there was a God or not, or if there was a God, what that even meant, I really wanted to know more about what the end could be like because I'd like yeah. to be one of those people whose final moments are um, savoring the beauty of life mm -hmm. and not fearing what could come next. Yeah, I also went through a long period of obsession and read multiple books about it mm. um, and have had some experience in my personal life where that these these types of things happen and people experience mm. them. So mm. uh, that was a really good question. And thank you for the answer, Mike. Uh, I'm actually going to ask this next question. Uh, this is by Jay Rainbows. Um, and they ask, I'm adopted, and I wondered what your thoughts are about nature versus nurture. I think being of a different blood really makes it difficult to bond as a family. It's a wonderful question. Um, and I, I've gotten where I don't like the phrase nature versus nurture, because I think it presents a dichotomy that doesn't exist. We have uh, genes, and those genes get expressed, right? In the process of us living and being, our genes get expressed. And the amount of expression that happens to a given gene can be influenced in our environment. And our brains are machines of potential. You know, they start as a neural tube and develop from there. And the things that happen even during gestation, but certainly in the first two years of life, remarkably impact the way that our brains form strategies for existing in relationship with other people. If you haven't heard of attachment theory, this is a wonderful uh, field of study in the psychological sciences that let us know that based on what happened between birth and two years of age, we all form attachment styles. We have a primary attachment style, and then we can get to a multiple stage of attachment where you have different attachment styles for different contexts. Some people have secure attachment style, meaning their parents had a really consistent and supportive manner in responding to their needs. That's most people, by the way. Some people have an anxious attachment style. And when you have an anxious attachment style, you, this is the kind of person who's like, hey, can you text me back? Can you text me back? Hey, did, did you get the text? Did you get the text? Are we friends? Are we really friends? 
uh, people with anxious attachment styles. It's not that their parents were were abusive or something. It just means sometimes they cried and got picked up, and sometimes they didn't. You know, something that simple can create an anxious attachment style. And then there's the the avoidant uh, uh, styles and the disorganized styles. And depending on whose research you're reading, the cat, the categorization and classification can get pretty muddy. But all I'm saying is those early years in our lives impact the way we respond in relationship with other people. Now, when you look at a family that involves adoption, which is just as much a family and just as normal a family and just an acceptable pattern of a family as any other form of family, you have some caregivers who are adopting a child and they have their own attachment styles, right? That come from their own childhood, whether they were adopted or not. And then if you're adopted, depending on what age you were adopted, how long you were with your birth parent, what that relationship was like, what you and your adopted family have in common is the main ways that you relate to other people come from your attachment style. And for you and your adopted family, that happened before you have a conscious memory. And so that I think in these kind of dynamics is where we get this notion of like, there's something different because this person, well, what's different is the parents probably don't remember some period of when your attachment style was formed, something we all have an intuitive awareness of, but maybe not a clinical expertise in. And that means for any family, listen to me, for any family, attachment work can be really important. Because so often uh, we love and trust our family more than anyone else in the world. And it's also where kind of the deepest maladaptive and even dysfunctional behaviors we're capable of come into play because we feel safe enough to kind of let it all hang out, so to speak. You know, with our friends, even our close friends, we tend to put on a curated presentation of ourselves. We often try to hide or, or, or shy away from uh uh, leaning into our maladaptive or destructive, self-destructive behaviors. And then family, there's just not that opportunity because we're all like growing and developing together. And so I think it's really important uh, anytime there's these kind of challenges to look at attachment style, attachment work through therapy, and then family systems therapy, right? Uh, because there was in some way where different expectations got set on what family means. And now there has to be a merger of family systems and family systems therapy is a great tool uh, for working through those kinds of dynamics. And by the way, all families need this kind of support. All families, especially in this mental health landmine of a year we've just been through and, and we still have some more time uh, going with these pit cycles of stress and isolation and anxiety and difficulty, we've all kind of got to do our work to learn how to take care of our feelings and communicate our feelings and needs to other people in a way that allows us to support ourselves and to support other people to the degree that we can, but no more. Um, so... I think it's always possible um, for families to put in the work to find more adaptive patterns of being together, being with each other, and ultimately uh, finding power with each other instead of trying to struggle to find power over each other. Mm -hmm. I like that, finding power with each other. 
Yeah, that's, that's pretty a, cool. That's a thing. That's a thing. No, uh, that's, not a, that's not a size mic original. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Justin Jones made a funny joke. He says, I have uh, the one ring attachment style. And that <laughs> just really made me giggle. <laughs> you guys don't usually get Mike singing on the stream. We, Victory and we I get do, to see I know, it right I know. before. Feeling loose. I'm feeling loose. Feeling tonight. loose. Well, You're Mike, speaking of feeling loose we have about like five minutes before ads so i want to throw you something kind of opinion based um, oh gosh todd asks what is the best animal oh, okay i thought it was gonna be a hard one dogs dogs <laughs> are the best animal that was easy and oh, that's not opinion man. that's fact that's objectively true. that dogs is objectively animals. true i really thought that, that was going to take you longer i thought we were going to go into the data and analytics <laughs> right of of no. our furred scaly feathered friends but instead you knew immediately and dogs I... are everything good about people with none of our oh. baggage yeah yeah um the I ultimate mean, they're, optimists they're, they're optimists. Absolutely. They are. They are. They are Zen masters. They live in the moment with absolute uh, uh, clarity. Yeah. Um, the cat people I mean, right now are. Cats are wonderful clawing. too. I like cats. I really like yeah. cats. Uh, yeah. I'm not like a. If it's got fur or feathers or I'm just an animal person. I mean, I'll go outside yeah. and like talk to bees you know what i mean like i'm, I'm, a, I'm an animal person tell everybody so just nice. like a minute about your hummingbirds because this is mike's happy place oh i've got a a carefully curated distributed set of hummingbird feeders across my property that maximizes <laughs> uh, the feeding potential while minimizing the capacity for any individual hummingbirds to be uh, territorial uh, <laughs> over a given feeder because they don't have line of sight for any of them and there's not a convenient perch they can sit and watch a feeder uncontested um which it took i'm willing to say months of engineering to reach this arrangement um wow. and uh, i just sit there and and I have names for individual hummingbirds i i i, I uh what are look they? at their markings um well, there's just you know the there's there's uh, Sir Rufus the Proud that's uh, uh, kind of the main alpha kind of hummingbird in the front yard, and then there's oh. Boss Vitkos who because uh, he wears Boss a green suit. Boss, that's what it was. Uh, in the backyard, um, there's Sparkles, mm -hmm. uh, oh. who's got this wonderful uh, uh, purple uh, throat display. Um, there's Mabel. Uh, I don't know why she's Mabel, but she's Mabel. She's a, a female uh, Anna's Is it because you hear me talking about my Mabel all the time? It probably is. Probably. I just look at the hummingbird and I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to call you. I don't put a lot of thought into it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I kind of know like who will come at what times and which ones are kind of extroverted or I would say gregarious because some of them, um, when I go out to clean and then refill the feeders, are very, very unafraid. I've had one... Yeah land on my hat Whoa. i was wearing a beanie hat and I just sit and wait while i kind of wash the feeder um and then or excuse me i was filling the feeder and then when i hung it up he went from my hat you know straight to the feeder before i even got my hand away because i have to eat every 12 minutes the metabolism is really high um i'm like getting emotional at how sweet this is 
I, I know all the lizards this. in my yard. I know like uh, what, what oh time of year, God. which kind of bees will be there. And I just like to go outside and be with wild things. So it's not just dogs. Dogs are the best animal. But I <laughs> love all animals um, uh, with a profound reverence. I've tried to make the the garden the, that we live on, our, our the lot our house is on, be uh, full of native plants and flowers and have it be kind of a refuge for um, wildlife that has so much intrusion into their homes by our home. So I figured it was their home first. Let's create a space that feels um, supportive to their needs. I have got I have gotten the privilege to be in the backyard when the hummingbirds are out and it's oh. pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, on that beautiful note, it's time to keep the lights on. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. There's no way we could do the Cozy Robot Show without the help of our sponsors. And one of my favorites is BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online mental health counseling service, and over one million people are taking charge of their mental health needs using BetterHelp. It's just the easiest, most convenient way I know of to get mental health support. BetterHelp works with licensed professional counselors. These are real professionals who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and all the kinds of challenges that we face just trying to get through life. And it's perfectly adapted for this era of social distancing because you connect with your counselor via text, chat, call, and video. I absolutely love the service and I use it every day. And I used it before the pandemic because it's hard to find a parking spot in Los Angeles to see a mental health professional and finding a mental health professional isn't easy either. And one of the things I love most about BetterHelp is they find an expert you'll love for you. You can go to their website, you fill out a questionnaire, and uh, they connect you with a counselor you're going to love. And if there's any kind of a problem, there isn't a problem because BetterHelp will find you another counselor at no additional charge. It's absolutely wonderful. So why not get started today? You can get off. You can get ten percent off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com/slash/cozyrobots. Our other sponsor this week is our friends over at NordVPN. Y'all, my background is in technology. I spent the first part of my career in daily conflict with hackers and other bad actors online. And the internet is a place where someone wants your information. You may think, well, not me. I don't have lots of money. You have enough money to be a target for these kind of folks. And not only that, not just hackers. What about all the times we get tracked online? What about all the intrusive advertising? NordVPN helps with all that because they secure and encrypt your connection to the internet. Using super fast servers in over 59 countries, more than 5,000 of these servers, lets you not only have a secure online experience, but also can, you can unlock Netflix and other entertainment websites that are usually geographically bound because NordVPN hides your location from information providers. They offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. 
because they know you're going to love the service that, by the way, includes no data logging. And they offer 24-7 customer support via live chat and email and up to six simultaneous connections because I know we've all got laptops and iPads and iPods and Android phones and game consoles and all those things that need to be online at the same time. They've got unlimited bandwidth and an automatic kill switch, so you know you're always protected. Best of all, in my mind, is that P2P file sharing is allowed. So, for NordVPN's birthday, they've got a special deal. Every purchase of a two-year plan will get you one additional month free and a surprise gift. So go to nordvpn.com slash cozyrobots and use coupon code Cozy Robots. That's nordvpn.com slash cozy robots. All right, Mike. Jana Ford asks, let me pull it up here. What are some theories behind if someone who is inherently gifted at a specific skill that most people would normally have to study and rehearse to reach the skill level that this person can achieve? So I think... I think Jana watched the Billie Eilish documentary on Friday night because I've been wondering this very same thing. What do you think, Mike? <laughs> uh, it is the combination of um, our DNA, our genes, how our genes are expressed in our environment, and then the developmental factors of our lives. Um, I did not watch the Billie Eilish documentary, so I couldn't speak to that. <laughs> But a lot of people who just seem to kind of effortlessly pick up music also come from musical families where you have a lot of people have genetic potential around musical performance. And then their neural networks, the neurons that fire together and wire together, are shaped by music and musicality throughout their lives. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, everyone sang all the time, right? And my sister has a beautiful voice. I mean, she sings like an angel. And she didn't really seem to have to work on it. It just came naturally. And I think that's because she had a lot of talent that was reinforced by her family system. My wife, Jenny, same thing. Her dad was in a band. Her mom taught choir. And Jenny just has this incredibly just sonorous voice, beautiful voice, incredible pitch control. I often joke that she could harmonize with the refrigerator. <laughs> and uh, my daughter, Madison... Um, just kind of like taught herself guitar and just kind of taught herself piano and both of my girls uh, sing really well and music. I mean, they are the artists. Sorry. Did yeah, you, right. You, I got so heard. excited. They're the artists behind the Cozy Robot show open. Yes. All the really themes are. that you hear, all the all the vocals, that's Madison and Macy McCarg. Um, now, I play bass and I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Um. So, you know, for some reason, that combination of genetic potential and environment just didn't play out for me. Um, but I think we all have things that uh, come to us more easily and things that come to us with less ease. But actually, and this is really important, often things that come easy to us are a detriment or an impediment because... Um, no one will achieve skill mastery without effort. And so often when we have something we have some natural potential for and we're better than average with little effort, well, to reach the next level might require failing. It might require 
revealing the ends of those talents. And so I think when we find people who are truly exceptional at something, they may have had a natural aptitude. Uh, but I think what's happening is we're not aware of the struggle and the work that they put into their gift as it happened behind closed doors and off camera and off stage. There was at some time a reckoning of what it meant to take natural talent and you know whatever advantages a family system and an early environment provided and transform that into something profoundly evocative and moving. I think in, in very, in only the most rare cases, um, does it have that kind of miraculous, truly effortless quality. Um, but I could be wrong. Mike, this next question, I think you're going to know the answer. <laughs> now, I'm we'll usurping. <laughs> I'm usurping. I, I, I know there are questions coming in, but I've got a question I've wanted to ask Mike for a long time, so I've got to throw it in here. Mike, in an epic battle between Zeus and Thor, who would win? Good question, Grace. Thank you so much. Do you, you mean like uh, purely mythologically? I mean, well, what what are you thinking? Wait, are we talking Chris Hemsworth? We're talking the the classic ancient god okay. right. Thor from Norse mythology. But you can imagine Chris Hemsworth as I am. I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could have my opinion on that. I don't think questions like that can be answered definitively. Obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an expert in Norse mythology. I know more about the Greek pantheon than I do about Norse mythology, but I, I would want to say based on the relationship between Odin and Thor and Zeus and the rest of the pantheon, that would probably be Zeus. Zeus is kind of a god of gods, um, and Thor is like an elite warrior god of a separate mm. pantheon, but not the head of that pantheon. Interesting. So that'd be where I'd go. All right. Thank you. I've I've been wanting to ask that for some time. <laughs> I'm like, I love mythology and uh, all that kind of stuff. So I, I had to ask. And someone jumped in uh, in the comments. Ben asks, Godzilla or King Kong? Uh, Godzilla. Yeah. That one seems obvious to me. Really? Um, yeah, the cinematic depictions of Godzilla consistently, the power levels displayed from Godzilla are simply higher than what you see in uh, mm. King Kong mythology. Um, the superior armament, I mean, a gorilla and a crocodile, if we start there as a base level, um, it's good to be scaly and armored and have a powerful bite pressure. And crocodiles can't even breathe energy rays or fire or anything like that. So, uh, And neither can King Kong, by the way. No, it's Godzilla. It's just... It, it's a, no it's a blowout. Godzilla yeah. just walks away with it. This is, uh, we got a question in from Alex, and it's perfect for right now. Um, this person, Alex, asks, is there a question that Mike cannot give a satisfying answer to? And I feel like the answer... So easy. I, I feel like it's, it's, I don't know. What are your thoughts, Mike? Uh, just lean into sports, pop culture, <laughs> fashion, um, 
massive swaths of people's everyday lives that have immense value and I have total ignorance in. Uh, or just ask me, like, uh, in how many days something will happen or how many days ago something happened. I'll just completely... Yeah, time is... Brain lock. Yeah. Uh, time as a... Um, dimension in physics totally comfortable time is like a lived part of our lives i don't understand it at all there's so many like this this is actually a point of frustration for me because people uh friends and, and family and uh people who watch my work alike all seem to wildly overestimate uh my level of intelligence or level of information and i think it's because um one, I'm autistic, and I tend to stick with what I'm comfortable with in conversation. So no matter what you ask me, I'm going to talk about the things I know about <laughs> interpersonally. And two, uh, there's just kind of this um, – I think people kind of intuitively know the places I can't really go. And it's more fun to ask me something that I can give a satisfying answer about than ask me what I think about the Billie Eilish documentary. I'm like, I am aware who Billie Eilish is mm -hmm. and recently became aware there was a documentary. I mean, it just um, came out Friday, so you're not too bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I just mean like, you know, that uh, I think the structure of my life and work means that people aren't aware like how many things are truly, deeply bewildering and confusing to me <laughs> that mm -hmm. they... Uh, it just effortlessly understand, uh, encounter, and communicate. Hmm. There you I go. Did, I did go to a trivia night with Mike once, and it was the only time I ever saw him stumped because they were questions about so sports easy. and, oh. like, pop culture. So it was, like, a question about K-pop or something. I can't even remember. But, um, yeah, I'd never seen him. I was like, whoa, this is wild. We still had a great time. We had a great time, yeah. uh, and I, I'm not particularly, unless you get into my areas, not particularly great at trivia. I once went to a trivia night, and I'm very bad at facts and remembering names. However, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and watch a lot of true crime movies, and the category was serial killers. And my family, my family was horrified to find that I knew the dates, how many people had killed. I, I, I was horrified to find it. They were like, "Oh my god!" And I, I was like, "I know this about Jeffrey Dahmer. I, I, I can't help it." Um, so I have, I have. <laughs> Su succeeded and, and excelled in uh, a very scary <laughs> Mike for those of you listening Mike has taken off his glasses <laughs> and is laughing oh, and God. I'm tickled. it's a, yeah it's such oh, a that's win. delightful you should have seen their faces. They were really shocked out of they were out of their minds. I'm imagining confused. the whole visual like People ask, you know, normal trippy questions, history, all that stuff, and then it comes around serial killers. And you're like, wait, I got this. <laughs> my ears perk up, and I'm like, I, I, my whole family's like, oh my god, we're we're here celebrating a birthday. Like this girl knows <laughs> so Sleep many. With one eye open tonight, Mom. yeah, for real. Um, all right, Mike, we have another great great question from Invisible Hearths. Very cool name. How trying to imagine an invisible hearth. 
Um, how do we work to escape our own echo box, however positive seeming, and gain a better understanding of other people, especially without accidentally falling into a new echo box? Oh, okay. Echo chambers and media. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, reduce your reliability on social media as your primary way of finding out information and forming social connections. Um, that's where most of this echo chamber stuff comes from. If you're talking about in media, <laughs> I'm going to sound really cynical here, but the only easy echo chamber to fall into in mass media is American capitalist neoliberalism. It's all just different flavors of the same ice cream, right? Like um, whether you're reading, whether you're watching Fox News or reading the New York Times, you are looking at different presentations of capitalist neoliberalism. So I think the whole thing about echo chambers and media is way overblown, but not overblown at all when it comes to social media, where machine learning algorithms are trying to curate content, show you pieces of content and information that uh, you will engage with so that they can sell more advertising impressions. And I think the echo chamber effect there can be very real. I think for those of us who are white or men or able-bodied or American or some mix of some or all of those, a lot of work needs to be put into breaking out an unseen echo chamber because when we talk about echo chambers, we often are talking about like points of political affiliation or ideology or whatever, and then don't notice that the vast majority of the media that we consume and the vast majority of friends we have in our lives are also white and straight and male and American and able-bodied or some combination of those things. And so when I've looked at trying to break down my echo chamber, um, what I've looked at is trying to start by making the media I consume be inclusive in terms of the people who created that media. I'm trying to make sure that I listen to more people who aren't white, who aren't men, who aren't able-bodied, who aren't straight, who aren't American. Now, I mainly read, so for me that means the authors that I read are um, just a more inclusive look at humanity. And then in the social relationships that I form, I'm trying to make sure that the people I invest with relationally are just less like me so that I get a more accurate picture of humanity as I move through my life. That doesn't mean I don't use social media. I do use social media. I love social media. Uh, I have a particular fondness for both Twitter and TikTok for different reasons. Uh, but I make sure that I balance my social media usage with other forms of relating to other people and consuming information. And uh, I actively look to be challenged in my relationships and in the things that I read and the shows that I watch. Um, across all spectrums, across identity, across political uh, ideas, across ideologies, across belief systems. Uh, I just look for a well-rounded representation of our species and I know that will be shocking to a lot of people because I think I probably present as being pretty uh, wildly progressive and, and quite far to the left economically. Uh, 
Um, but those also aren't things that are all that valuable to me. The the kind of political ideologies I talk about and um, the kind of social ideals I espouse are are something far are symptoms of far deeper notion to me, and that's just that all people should be equal to one another. And I mean that in every way you can imagine in life and relationships and the economy and access to resources. I, equality is very important to me. And uh, if my echo chamber is other people who believe that but disagree on the methods by which we get there, that's an echo chamber I'm perfectly happy to stay inside of. Wonderful. All right. We've been talking a lot about earthly things. Let's take it to the cosmos. Okay. How'd you like that transition? <laughs> Very good. I was terrified. I was like, wait, is this going to be a bunch of religion questions? Oh. <laughs> earthly no, is, the- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Triggered. Um, triggered. Yeah. <laughs> I could see the panic. Um, <laughs> Anne, Anne asks... Do you think intelligent life exists out there somewhere in the universe? Something at least 95% human-like. It's a real turn toward the end there. Yeah. I- <laughs> um, I am almost certain intelligent life exists in the universe other than here on Earth. Based on what we look, when we look at the sky right now, we're aware of a couple things. Number one, the universe is absolutely massive. Just however massive you think the universe is, you're not even close to how immense the volume of space-time is. And based on our experiments, it seems the universe is probably not just immense, it's probably spatially infinite, meaning like space just goes on and on and on and on forever. It's not temporally infinite, infinite as far as we can tell it had a time had a beginning 13.77 billion years ago or so uh but space time is an infinite fabric with one dimension limited meaning time so if something spatially infinite statistics would tell us uh that even very uncommon things are infinite in number so i don't i don't just think that there are some intelligent life forms out there. I think there are an infinite number of varieties of intelligent life forms in the universe. Some are probably very human-like out of what? Statistical necessity. And given two factors, number one, the infinite volume of space, and number two, relativistic effects, the fact that the speed of light creates a limit on how far and fast information can be transmitted in the universe, I think it's possible, perhaps even likely, that the human species will live out its entire arc of existence without ever encountering intelligent life from another planet. Um. And so that means no matter what I infer from cosmology and statistics, I'm unlikely to be able to confirm or deny that in my lifetime or, in fact, in all lifetimes put together. But if the universe is spatially infinite and, therefore, intelligent life is also infinite, it 
would tell us statistically that there are at least some parts of the universe where intelligent life is kind of tightly clustered and you probably do have some interstellar and intergalactic cultures out there. Uh, anyway, that's how I contemplate the Fermi paradox, which is the notion in astronomy that um, life doesn't seem to be all that rare in terms of what it would take to create life. And yet, when we look at the night sky, we don't see spaceships or signals everywhere. And that is the Fermi paradox. And my solution is um, that life, intelligent life, is relatively hard to develop and therefore relatively unlikely to be uh, within the light speed communication of other intelligent life over the average amount of time that a given species is intelligent. <laughs> I love it. And Priscilla commented giant flying lobster aliens, which is what we titled a previous Total show. Yeah. Total callback. So yeah, it. total callback. Love that, Priscilla. <laughs> um, do we have time for one more question? One hundred. Yes. Okay, let's see. It's like one hundred questions. <laughs> one hundred. Um, <laughs> Talk about a never-ending live show. All right, let's see. Let's see. Oh, we're getting some new ones in. Okay, okay, okay. Someone. Okay, let's go back to the first <laughs> question asker, the eternal raccoon. If humans had descended from the same common ancestor as raccoons, instead mm -hmm. of at the juncture we did with primates, what would humans be like now? And can you agree it would be way cooler? <laughs> <laughs> well, number one, I mean, the, the question is well informed because I thought I had a technicality, but I don't. Humans and raccoons do have a common ancestor. It's just further back in time. Oh. Humans and bananas have a, a common ancestor. <laughs> human and algae, human and COVID-19 likely uh -oh. have a common ancestor if you go back far enough, right? So uh, if we were saying, if we were about the same distance in relation uh, to raccoons as we are to primates... Well, there are other animal species who are closely related to raccoons. They are, unsurprisingly, <laughs> raccoon-like. <laughs> um, that got me. <laughs> um, they are unsurprisingly raccoon-like. <laughs> so, you know, I, I suppose uh, if we were hyper-intelligent raccoons, um, <laughs> we'd have thumbs, but they wouldn't be opposable. Oh. Um, we uh, wouldn't use as tonally complex vocalizations based on the structural differences in our larynxes. Wow. We'd probably be furrier. We'd likely be smaller. Um, so without the ability to manipulate objects or enunciate speech, I'm not sure we could have bootstrap civilization. I think for our particular type of intelligence, which is highly focused on mechanical dexterity, um, I mean, that's, that's why the primates are our cousins. Um, I'm not saying raccoons couldn't, that branch of, of mammals, couldn't move towards a civilization-building intelligence. Um, 
but that would have to be a a, a broader family, I think, uh, for that to work with the same level of genetic difference that we have with other primates. Jacob in the comments said, new band name, unsurprisingly (laughs) (laughs) raccoon-like. That whole explanation just gave me so many amazing, like, mental images. And I had the Beatles' Rocky Raccoon, of course, playing, like, as the background to the whole explanation. But... Well, thank you, the eternal <laughs> raccoon. You gave that us some pretty really awesome question. questions. Yeah. And everybody gave us some awesome questions. If you enjoyed the episode and the structure of it, having a very open topic structure, uh, mm-hmm. let us know. Let me know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I read all those comments and messages. So, yeah, let me know what you thought about the structure of this episode tonight. And, and the questions were great. I love. I know, it. and there were so many we couldn't answer. So it's yeah. so great to have more opportunities to to answer more questions. So if you guys like this, let us know. Absolutely, it's amazing to me. This ends up being a popular format of the show. Just like <laughs> literally any question, no theme, just. <laughs> It's fascinating. It's awesome because who would have thought that we could have had a a raccoon themed episode? Like, (laughs) I wouldn't. That's not one I would have come up with. It was unsurprisingly raccoon like (laughs) -like. this episode. Yeah. That's the show title, if you ask me. Oh, okay. I'm going to write it down. How exciting. It's time. The end. Well, (laughs) the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank each, not thank, I'd like to thank each and every Cozy Robot who make this show possible. Our producers are Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Music by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Amy Hill. Social media management, Grace Vaughn. Design, Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design, Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse at Jesse Lane Interiors. Yes, Jesse, I do say that every single week. <laughs> Wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We can't wait to see you again next week. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye.